We're no longer on a simple linear path to purchase. In fact, the concept of the traditional marketing funnel doesn't really exist anymore. That's according to Google Australia and New Zealand's Managing Director of Sales Specialist, Reese Williams, who sat down with Mumbrella to discuss his career, changing consumer expectations, and how automation is helping businesses navigate the tectonic shifts in digital marketing. Read all about it on mumbrella.com.au. to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin and today things are taking shape at Dentsu as it appoints two familiar faces to its media side of the business in just as many weeks. Then a look at how client sentiment is impacting agency staffing and the timing of it all as the end of 2022 approaches fast. Finally, you'll hear from Initiative's Chief Strategy Officer Chris Coulter on the year that was in TV as he tells you who the real winner was, if you should care and what really matters. Joining me today is Editorial Director. We're getting uh, just used to seeing his face again. It's Damien Francis. Hey, Damo. Glad to be back, mate. You've had me back for a second time. I must have been halfway decent the first time. You were just so good that we had to have you back on. And uh, another familiar face on the Mumbrella cast this year, it's Trinity P3's Global CEO, Darren Woolley. Thanks, Callum, and uh, good to see you, Damo. You too, mate. So you both are taking a nap this afternoon in order to get up at 2am for Australia's do or die clash tonight against Denmark? Uh, mate, no, I've, I've got a bigger sporting event on tonight. It's the Our Lady of the Rosary school play that takes pay, uh, wow. place at 7pm tonight. I'll be, I'll be there live. Uh, I might do a live stream for anyone interested in, in what will be, I'm sure, a riveting performance. And I think uh, a Darren, mutual you get a ticket to one. All- <laughs> no, I, I was going to say, uh, I think a mutual friend of ours will be up watching that, uh, Nick Christensen, who used to work at Mumbrella. Uh, you know, he, he may be a bit conflicted, Australia versus uh, Denmark. I know. He's got the uh, the Danish passport, doesn't he? So I guess he, he'll, um, we'll see which way the wind blows and maybe that'll be the way that Nick decides. Everyone's uh, a winner if you're Nick Christensen. <laughs> everyone is a winner. <laughs> And he'll be very happy as well to be getting this much airtime on the podcast. So why don't we crack into the first topic? Um, and I, I, I'd like to go back and do a bit of a count at some point, but I think from the top of my head that Dentsu might take the cake this year for most podcast segment mentions. Um, they've now appointed former Thinkabell, Chep, OMD, PwC and Bain & Company media man Ben Shepard as its chief investment officer, a week after bringing in former UM CEO Fiona Johnson uh, as its chief client officer as Danny Bass's operation takes shape. First of all, Darren, it seems as though Bass is beginning to put his stamp on what they're calling the media portfolio now. Uh, what do you make of it so far? Well, look, I think when uh, Angela was promoted to her role in the UK, there was an announcement about a rebuilding here. And I think this is an extension of that rebuilding. We're seeing them recruiting beyond media across the whole of the agency. Uh, you know, you check out all of the leaders, I think almost 70% of them have been recruited in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that this is just evidence of uh, them investing in a long-awaited rebuild of the leadership team at Dentsu. 
Well, look, you mentioned there, um, uh, just as a reminder, uh, we had Kirsty Muddle in as the Dentsu creative CEO at the end of or about a year ago now. Um, joining her has been Mandy van der Moer and Avish Gordon um, at Dentsu Creative as the new co-chief creative officers. We found out that Ben Welsh, former DDB um Chief Creative Officer has been there since May. We've also had David Halter as the Chief Strategy Officer, Chris Bauer and John Riccio as well. There's probably a few we've missed out there. The the, the emphasis has sort of been placed on moving away from this traditional agency structure. Um, But but Damo, it seems like a lot of these people uh, are actually coming from traditional agencies. Of course, Ben has his experience, Ben Shepard, that is in the consultancies. And then the new boss, um, Patricio de Mateus, obviously consultancy as well. What, what, what What can we kind of take from this hiring? Look, I think it's really easy for a lot of Holcos in particular to say that they're moving away from the traditional agency structure. Look, I would probably suggest, and Darren would know better than me, that uh, you know the, the structures of agencies are reshaping themselves, but in completely different ways for for different agencies, just depending on their uh, their business model, the the professionals they're hiring, the clients they have. Uh, everyone sort of wants to suggest that they're doing something completely different. Uh, I'm not sure necessarily that that's the case for many uh, of the people saying that. And I'm not necessarily sure that they have to either, if, if I'm honest. But uh, I think Darren makes a good point earlier in that, you know, uh, you know 70% or, or so, you know, we're, we're probably pulling figures from, from the air at the moment. But roughly speaking, you'd say there's a lot of people uh, new in senior roles at Dentsu at the moment. And if you want to change the way your group works, obviously you've got to get all those senior people on board, but to have so many coming in from so many different uh, agencies, so many different whole codes, so many different ways of doing things will really uh, be interesting to see over the next 12 months or so, how Dentsu comes to terms with that, gets them all on board and, and running in the same direction and, and sort of, uh, I guess, putting the flag up the the same flagpole but Darren in your experience you know have have you ever seen a a transition like this with with so many senior people and do you think it's going to be a a a relatively uh, trouble-free progression for for Dentsu? Uh, Damien we've seen particular units within or particular agencies have this type of leadership change but never across the whole holding company. When you think about it, I think almost every team, you know, Merkel, uh, Solutions, Creative and Media have all had massive change. Even even the CEO role with Angela leaving and, and Patricio um, joining. I don't think he's actually started it's Jan- that yet. January 1. January 1, right. Um, so, you know, this is a major change and... and I think the work that uh, Angela did for that uh, two years before she was appointed to the UK was really, you know, cleaning out the cupboards and laying the groundwork for this massive recruitment drive. You know, they really are investing in quite senior people into these roles, which is you know, unusual because what we have seen in the past is when senior people get either poached or leave, they're inclined to uh, promote people within. This is very much the big change here is really all of these people have been bought from other Mm organisations. 
And that's going to have some significant cultural effects because all of them will come with their own ways of working and their own ways of doing things, which must have an impact on the way the agency feels and works together. But then uh, I guess on top of that, you've got Patricio coming in and there, there must be some sort of agreement there, Darren, because you, would you not think that when there's a new chief executive of a country and we've got now within that structure a lot of, I guess, chief or chief executives that they're not going to want, he's not going to want to make or implement changes his himself? How is he going to really impose his vision or his strategy on the company when there's not really any room to make any of those really senior hires? Well, he comes with years of experience of managing consulting businesses. And I think it's not so much about hiring people as really bringing to to the task how to best utilise that sort of depth and breadth of uh, senior uh, talent to actually deliver on the value. You know, I mean, I imagine Dentsu's uh, salary bill has gone up significantly over the last 12 months. And uh, there's going to be people sitting somewhere in Tokyo hoping to see a quick return on that investment in the next 12 months or so. So he's got a big enough job as it is, just making uh, making everyone work together to maximise one, value for clients, but also obviously value for shareholders as well. And, and I think a good thing because you're inclined to find very experienced and talented people are uh, less likely, hopefully, to be children in the sandpit and, and find a way of um, working well together. That's a good point, uh, Darren, in terms of you look at the, the seniority of these people, but also you look at the agencies that they've come from as well. I'm not sure if you could get a more diverse group of agencies that they've come from. Look at David Holter and coming from, uh, you know, coming across from CHEP, you know, uh, and, and the Howitzen CHEP. Uh, yeah. as opposed to the chip we've got now. Uh, different, it's both successful, but, but different. Uh, MNC Saatchi, uh, you, you know, you, you've also got Cummins and Partners, you're delivering senior people into Dentsu. These are all very different agencies in the way they operate. And, and these uh, senior executives have come in with that different background. So it'll be fascinating to see just sort of how, how they mesh together uh, and to your point before, Darren, you know, Patrizio coming in with that consultancy sort of background as well, um, all to play for. Yeah, picking up on your point earlier, Damien, in that while they've talked about wanting to move to a consultancy model, there are some key consultants in there, you know, but I think there's still a lot of agency people. You know, if we go through the list, obviously, uh, Danny and Fiona, uh, uh, ben and and you know we can say Ben's got a consulting background, but really at PwC and at uh, Bain, his role was to bring marketing and advertising and media into those organisations. Uh, Kirsty, uh, the one person I think we've overlooked is uh, Gail Weil, who is a terrific uh, creative operator and and a great people person. Uh, I think you know fits very well in that creative group. Uh, with Kirsty there. Uh, and then we've got, you know, the consultants, uh, uh, John Riccio and Chris uh, Bauer, except that they are in the part of the business, you know, with Merkel and Solutions, where you probably can take a much more consulting approach. Mm-hmm. But I've, I think it'll, they'll really struggle to bring a consulting model to creative and media 
because you you're relying on the client also getting their head around what does a consulting model look like you know it's the same issue we're seeing the consulting firms start to build creative and media functions and yet it doesn't fit naturally inside the culture of the consulting firm that they're housed within well i mean on your on your point there darren it's funny when uh, shepherd was hired uh, by chris howitson at chep um, Howardson said that his appointment was uh, kind of looking to deepen the agency's consultancy capabilities. So there is obviously that view that that's some of the some of what he brings. Maybe that was because it was coming just after his time at PwC. Um, on Shepard in particular, he's a well-known media agency uh, figure, one of the more well-known outside, I guess, those top executives often having a public voice. This has included a, uh, a long-standing regular column for Mumbrella, as well as publishing a book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Advertising and Media, but were too afraid to ask. Um, Damo, what's the sort of general consensus on Shepard in the industry? This is now his fourth row in, in just about as many years. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned some of the diversity of agencies just before. I think Shepard's worked for quite a few of them in recent years as well. Yeah, look, uh, you know, you mentioned the long-standing opinion pieces that, that he wrote. I think there was only one person who's done more and, and that person is sitting here on the podcast with us at the moment. Uh if you haven't read them, you, you really do need to read Darren's pieces. But look, moving on to, to Ben, you're right. He's got a, a let's say he's got a, a diverse range of experience uh, all uh, across the last few years, uh, whether that was at PwC, at Thinkabell, at Bain. There's a, there's a lot of experience there and there's clearly quite a smart operator and someone I think he's well known because he's quite willing to share his opinions He's quite willing to share the, the data that he's got on a number of very interesting topics. He, he knows what's news and he knows sort of when to, to post some pretty interesting pieces. A lot of them you, you'll see when he does post on, on LinkedIn. There's a lot of debate and, and, and discussion uh, around some of them as well. And he's not afraid to sort of jump into that also. But look, he, he is very well known. He's clearly got a lot of um, a lot of experience across a number of different brands. So he knows a number of ways of working uh, as well. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what the tenure is at, at Dentsu. Obviously, we'd like to see him, you know, uh, sort of bed in and get the feet under the, the desk a lot. But it's a, it's a solid hire based on his, his knowledge. But, um, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out obviously there's a bit of a a history of movement but Darren what do you think well I found it interesting seeing the role he's been appointed into a head of investment because you know let's uh, th- cast our mind around the country is there another head of investment that is as high profile as Ben will be? And because usually head of investment is someone that gets on with it, you know, builds the relationships with the publishers, isn't really going around sharing a lot of opinions. I know that's a generalisation, but, you know, name for me one other head of investment that, you know, immediately comes to mind as a industry spokesperson or, or is contributing to the the conversation like uh, Ben does and, and, and is. I think you have to go back to Henry Tasia when uh, he was at UM and head of investment. You know, and, and then it was more because he had a reputation for re- causing a lot of pain and suffering in his negotiations with the, the media owners. But, yeah, 
I, that's why I think it's a really interesting uh, appointment because if it had been you know, head of strategy or, or something like that, then I'd understand that someone with such a breadth of, of knowledge and a willingness to share his insights and opinions uh, would would make more sense to me. I'm just wondering how they're going to balance the role of, you know, really driving their strategy across all of the different um, channels that they're dealing with, with someone who's very quick to to go to the marketplace and say, you know, this doesn't work. You know, it wasn't that long ago that he was calling out uh, uh, Facebook and, and the like, uh, you know, very openly and publicly uh, in, in a way that could potentially uh, piss off the exact people that he's then going to be trying to negotiate with on behalf of the clients. Well, I, I was having some some conversations this morning after you know, that story this morning, and uh, there there have been some people already mentioning, in particular, exactly what you're talking about there, Darren, the the chief investment role in particular to say, and there's a few media owners who are having conflicting views on that. So it'll be interesting, certainly, to see how those relationships play out. And just one last point um, on Dentsu. Last year, uh, we saw Sue Scolacci's role expanded to the official title of Dentsu Media CEO. Now we've been told that Dentsu Media is definitely not a brand. Um, although on the other side, we do have a single unified brand for its creative and PR operations. Um, there's still no individual leaders across those three media agencies, Cara, um, iProspect and Dentsu X. What, what do you think um, is the likely strategy here, Darren? Are we, are we going to see, I guess, a unified brand at some point? Uh, look, I think that they're heavily invested, in, particularly in the Cara brand. You know, they paid a lot of money to Aegis years ago to, to buy it. Uh, it's not a brand that they probably quickly want to dissolve. And why would you when you potentially may need it for uh, conflict purposes? Mm-hmm. Uh, Dentsu X will certainly need uh, building up in profile. I think uh, what you'll see is their main focus, particularly for Fiona and Danny, will be rebuilding all three businesses to the point that they can then put in place a a managing director or CEO for each of those brands individually. I mean, you'd be mad to go to a consolidated model. All your competitors have uh, conflict shops or secondary shops to, uh, to manage that. So why would you? Right, let's move on to the next topic coming up, how the ad industry is shaping up for 2023. Amidst the context of rate rises and tightening wallets, we've seen redundancies across a number of agencies in the past month, including Ogilvy, MNC, Saatchi, AJF Partnership, Cummins and Partners, and a few more that we're likely to hear about soon, with the common line being that uh, they are adjusting to client demands as we head into an uncertain 2023. Speaking to Nick Williams of Williams International a few weeks ago, he said the cuts around this time of year are par for the course. However, they're particularly rife this year. Darren, from your perspective, what seems to be the key contributing factor here? Is client spending pulling back? Is there an adjustment from the pandemic or is it something else? 
Look, uh, I think it's a little bit of everything. You know, we've seen the big uh, tech companies slash and burn their staff. And you know, part of that is suddenly when money becomes much more expensive, the uh, excesses of the past catch up with them and they have to make cuts. You know, they, they call it right-sizing, I think, is the, uh, the right-sizing the business back to, to what's justifiable. The biggest impact, though, is definitely the uncertainty. I mean, no one's saying recession, and yet everyone's predicting that we're going to hit, hit a recession at some point. And so everyone's hedging their bets. You know, this is, uh, to Nick's point, it's around this time of year that people, you know, agencies and, and companies will start looking at um, uh, their numbers, their headcount, and, you know, Merry Christmas, here's your redundancy, don't come next year, is unfortunately... You know, what, what a great Christmas present to be made redundant, you know, weeks before Christmas. But anyway, um, it, it, it seems to be the way that it's happening. And it's all of these things, you know, tech downsizing, clients uh, are, are holding back spend even as we speak because, you know, everyone's uncertain as to what's actually going to happen. In Australia alone, you know, the whole um, RBA, you know, will they cut in December? Will they not? What are we going to look like in February if they do cut, if they don't cut? Have the cuts to date had the rel- uh, the impact needed to reduce inflation? You know, there's all these questions and you just see the media is full of the conversations and every mm. expert has got an opinion, of course. But that uncertainty is the worst thing that can happen to business because it just means that you can't make an informed decision because no one knows the answers. Well, we saw the the RBA actually apologising for those who took out loans on their advice last year. Interestingly, and um, Darren, just a quick quick note on you mentioned Christmas there. Um, a year ago, I remember you wrote one of your columns that Damien was talking about um, on the Christmas pitch with Coca Cola and what a lovely present that was for um, those uh, taking part in that the year prior. Do you think they're should be a consideration at all when making these decisions, heading straight into the festive period? Is that not really the responsibility or a worry for the agency? We have that conversation a lot, Callum, uh, because clients will often say, oh, the agency will be quiet over Christmas. Let's drop the RFP on them just before Christmas. And we say to them, well, you know, Merry Christmas to you too. Uh, If you are going to do that, make sure you give people most of January to actually get back to you on it, you know, or why not wait until, you know, early January and then send it through so that people can at least have a holiday. I think the Coca-Cola one two years ago was interesting because, yeah, they they lobbed the the global RFP weeks before Christmas and then took almost a year to the day (laughs) to actually appoint WPP to most of the business globally. So it's now 12 months down the track, you know, and, and we're still seeing that settling in in a way. So I think if you haven't, uh, if you haven't got everything organised before Christmas, it's worthwhile holding off until the new year. Yeah, well, I mean, that was anecdotally, um, I guess, a bit of commentary, especially with quite a few of these cuts, that it is quite a harsh time to, to, to be implementing them after basically two and a half, almost three years of, um, I guess, uncomfort for a lot of people and what's happened this year. But um, Damien, um, 
we talk about the talent war. This has been a conversation which has been raging on since the start of COVID. You've been covering this for, I guess, a significant uh, amount of time more than I have. Um, do you think this is just the next turn in it, or do you think this will be a one and done period of cuts? I mean, has, has this conversation about the talent war existed for a long period before COVID? I think we're in a really interesting position here with the with the talent war because over the last year, year and a half, potentially, we've been talking about the the lack of, of available talent and having to pay over the odds to get any sort of halfway decent talent uh, through the door, whether your agency or brand side. Uh, at some stage, the economics of that don't necessarily work out. We're sitting in a correction uh, at the moment. This is probably a, a microcosm of the greater correction. The the economy is correcting itself now on a much larger scale, and it's not just the media marketing industry. that That's all industry at the moment. And obviously, that has a knock-on effect on the media and marketing industry. So if there are businesses that have paid over the odds for talent you know, in, in extreme senses, and we know that there are some who have, there's going to be an overcorrection now as they look at their, their business and the revenue coming in, the profits uh, that they're making and, and how that stacks up against the, the staff that they have and the expenditure on that staff. So while I think this is, uh, this is part and parcel of the, the media and marketing industry in that we see it all the time, client comes, staff are gained, client goes, staff are lost. Uh, but this is, like I say, uh, part of a much bigger economic issue at the moment, which is combined with the fact that th- these last, you know, 12, 18 months have been particularly hard on the talent market. So, you know, un- unfortunately, I think there will be some significant corrections uh, unless something strange happens and, and we automatically or, or relatively soon into 2023 start to calm ourselves on the economic uh, front. But uh, Darren, on that sort of side of the, the talent market, have you seen anything like this before? Well, look, um, I was, the, the thing that came to mind as you were um, talking about over-investing is that I, while we've all heard the stories about uh, people being poached or or for 30% more or 40% more, or having to pay 30% more to keep and retain the talent. Uh, I can honestly say that hasn't flown on to the charge out rates. I think almost all the agencies, if they are paying these sorts of increases, are not finding ways to be able to to pass that on. Because, you know, we keep a track of that through our online database, uh, the ad cost checker, and we're not seeing those sorts of increases in roles. We're maybe seeing, you know, four or five percent, particularly in those mid-level roles. But uh, senior roles and junior roles have remained relatively static, which makes me think that it's being exacerbated even before the downturn, because agencies may be paying more in salaries, but they're not finding the way to be able to then have the conversation and and increase their uh, billable uh, rate levels to actually cover those uh, additional costs. Well, I guess just turning my head back to a conversation I had with Belinda Lodge, who's a headhunter based in Melbourne of um, iPopulate. She actually predicted this last year when we spoke to her for one of our stories on the talent crisis, saying that, as you mentioned there, Darren, it was was those mid-level roles 
are going to cause agencies to continue overpaying. And now she said a year on that the mid-level role basically doesn't exist because that pay gap has just been completely eliminated by agencies overpaying to either retain or attract staff. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on. Uh, finally, after the break, that chat with Chris Coulter on the year in TV. Chris Coulter, Chief Strategy Officer at Initiative Australia. Welcome to the podcast. G'day. Thanks for having us. Great to see you. So uh, the Oztam TV ratings year has just finished up. Seven finished the survey with a 30.3% share of total people across the national audience with nine on 27.8% and the ABC just ahead of 10 on 166 and 16.5% respectively. However, nine ranked number one within the key demos of 25 to 54, 16 to 39 and the grocery shopper plus child. Seems as though we have this same argument every year, Chris, of who really won with the subsequent war of words, which we've seen play out. Um, for you, who is the winner? And, uh, should we really care who's claiming to be the winner at this time of the year? Look, I mean, like, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, all networks performed well in their own right. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at the stats, it's it's hard to say, you know, nine winning share in those key demos off the back of, you know, a really strong content slate. I think it'd be hard to argue that they haven't won the year. What I think was actually really impressive um, was actually the the STV performance, in particular your Foxtel and KO, like their sporting growth that they had um, across the year. I think um, has been significant, um, and I think often when we have these conversations, those guys get overlooked. Um, so I think that was a really big shout. But you know, when it comes to whether or not you know people should care, I, I guess like first and foremost, sure, ratings are always a good you know, reliable indicator of future performance because there's momentum and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, we want our clients to maximise their reach and their, their cultural visibility. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, as the industry starts to move more towards addressable audience first buying, it's it's kind of waning as a bit of a metric in terms of how we evaluate partners moving mm-hmm. forward. So, we we talk about how you as a media buying agency is evaluating uh, evaluating your partner and it's funny at the moment we're kind of last week on the podcast um we were trying to compare the numbers between uh viewership of the Socceroos game of the last world cup and you kind of it's night and day between how audience viewing has changed over the last few years you also mentioned nine there uh also took a 49.1 percent share of the bvod market as a, as a buying agency are you are you putting the commercial tv channels or networks in their own I guess, in in a separate pile to what you're considering with your Foxtels and your KOs and I guess now with the uh, the added Netflixes and, mm. and soon-to-be Binge and Net- Disney Plus as well? No, I'd actually say quite the opposite, man. I think like what the, the approach that we take here, at least at Initiative and you know, broader media brands, is, is more of like a screens-led strategy. Because um, I think, you know, if you start to bucket things into traditional versus digital versus streaming, um, you start to do things around accidentally falling into audience overlap, duplication, you kind of limiting sort of what you're actually doing in terms of buying asset for purpose. 
Like, you know, a perfect example is the vast majority of clients that, you know, activate in a BVOD arena, think of it as, you know, an extension of their digital channel buys and they put digital screens, assets in it. But we know that, you know, upwards of 75, 80% of people are viewing BVOD on a TV screen. So it's mm-hmm. like, why not capitalize on the biggest screen in the house and how they're doing it? So I think if you if you have a binary view of there's a digital, there's a, um, a traditional way to buy, I think you're actually missing the the general way that audiences consume the channel and also the the opportunities that you can activate within it. So I guess is there, on that on that point, is there a bit of a disparity between the way that it's reported publicly and then the way that you're actually using the data that's made available to actually inform your decision making? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, measurement has always been a bit of a challenge when it comes to TV. You know, obviously we've got our Nielsen boxes and, and digital has their own methodologies that, you know, you can argue are more precise um, but equally have their own sort of failings. I think the industry is moving forward towards a better measurement framework for total screens, but also so are agencies. You know, we're investing in a lot of infrastructure and technology that that helps us bridge the gap in those measurement mm-hmm. challenges and also, um, you know, show clients, you know, where you are experiencing things like audience overlap or, you know, um, how we can kind of better drive incrementality for you across the t- total screens by and even just things in terms of like basic fundamental role of channels and and, and how they're measured um, as a as a unified lens. So we you mentioned that uh, each of the networks performed, I guess, um, well in terms of what some of those aims were. Um, we talk about uh, particular programming, and um, we've just come off the back of. Uh, the upfront season, which we've seen, the slate for 2023. Um, just first, speaking about the year that was this year, were there any major standouts or surprises for you? Maybe something that performed better than you thought it would or maybe on the, the other side of the coin? Yeah, this will sound like a random one and it might just be because I was a consumer of it, but like The Hunted was this yeah. really random standout performer. Um, and I guess it kind of reminded you know media buyers and networks that just effectively a good concept well executed will generally deliver results um i think you know there was some interesting um conversations around what happened in the block and some of those other sort of temple programs um but I, I i don't know like i go back and i think you know the biggest shock moment of the year um with a with a positive resurgence on the other side was was neighbors you know neighbors seeing its last episode on free to air was a, was a massive moment yeah. But then to have it like almost rebirth within that same year cycle um, was really kind of an interesting dynamic and, and the, the fan response is, is, is quite significant. So it'll be interesting to see how that performs on, on Amazon next year. But mm-hmm. like outside of that, like, you know, the sporting stuff all performed, you know, there or thereabouts. Um, so like those would be like the big standouts for me just off the top of my head. Do you think... Um... Well, I was going to say, before we go into a little conversation of sport, do you think uh, Kylie is going to have been annoyed that she made all that effort to return to Neighbours only for it to, to come back? <laughs> massively, massively. Uh, um, so, although, like, so, I'm sure that she'd be happy to get some Amazon dollars. Oh, well, who wouldn't, to be fair? Um <laughs> So you mentioned the sport there. Um, it seems to be this conversation is sort of... Um, 
presented itself that sport is the the true guarantor of ratings uh, or one of the the only last things that are guarantees of ratings. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at Ten's performance this year. They did they, they they did come fourth behind ABC in total share. Obviously, a significantly or some distance behind the top two in the commercial share. Um, at the moment, we have the ongoing negotiations for cricket across the summer, um, and whether or not that will be split between Test match cricket and the Big Bash League. Um, how important do you think something like that to have those guaranteed ratings at the start of the year for maybe a network like Ten would that be to then kick off the ratings year? Look, I think first and foremost, like nailed it on the head, right? Sport and probably news are the last bastions of guaranteed performance. You know, even if you look at 10 Slate, you know, their key sort of bets, I guess you can say, from an agency perspective, things that usually were safe, your master chefs of the world, um, you know, have started seeing, you know, significantly declining performance. So sport is by far and above the smartest strategy that a network can invest in. Um, if if I was 10, I would be throwing the kitchen sink at premium deals. Um mm-hmm. You know, I know that it was it was reported that like in the AFL rights deals, you know, they came in under your sevens and nines, what they were paying sort of currently even. And it's like if you're going to turn around a channel like that, you you got to back it and you've got to invest. Play a big bet. And you've got to play a big bet and you've got to do it well. Don't just get the rights and undercook it as well. Because the thing is once you put big serious coin in it, you create news that consumers actually listen to and therefore you create an expectation that you're going to one-up um, the broadcaster prior and give you a new reason to, to lean in. And if you do that effectively, you know, yes, it definitely sets a year up for success. Like, you know, there is a lot of research that shows the flow on of, you know, if you're stuck on a channel and then you watch the, let's just say the cricket into the news and you start to build a relationship with that news anchor, you start becoming stickier in their other programming as well. So, you know, if I was if I was ten, I'd be going hard. I'd be thinking less A League and more cricket, and going like premium, big bets, yeah. and um, yeah, locking it in early. One of those tier one sports. Um, so it's it's been, it's been I guess in other departments a, a bit of a you mentioned. Hunted, which was the number one new show of the year. Um, they did have a few new shows as well that have maybe not performed as well. The Real Love Boat, The Challenge and The Traitors. Um, how do you look at new programming? And is there is there a formula, in, I guess, in what works and what doesn't? Or is it, uh, I guess, a bit, a bit of a potluck draw with, um, you know, you talked about the execution of a pretty simple idea like Hunted. Yeah, look, I think like there are many ways that we do this with clients, you know, particularly if you're trying to get as like an early mover advantage um, as a sort of lead sponsor. First and foremost, as we look at precedent in other global markets, you know, is there like, is this a import from another market? How did it do across there? Not really relevant in the cases here, but like, you know, that's one way that we do it. Another way is like based on similar launches of similar properties, you know, what could we expect in that space? So, like, there's always a little bit of informed confidence going into it, but, you know, without seeing any pilots and without, like, even seeing it out there in the wild, it's really hard to, to forecast. But, like, what we also know is if you manage to strike gold and you get onto a program early, the gains are disproportionate because the sponsorship levels are lighter, 
um, you mm-hmm. know, the, the audience growth becomes like the audience delivery becomes an over delivery versus, you know, chasing make goods, which is, <laughs> you know, the, the plight of our industry. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, overall, there's, there's also a little element of gut. You know, you can generally get like after you watch like a trailer or something, you're going, yeah, this is going to have enough tension in it or it's going to have enough of the the ingredients of a good program that it's going to do well um, just based on sort of, you know, your own experience and your own, in, um, what do you call it, like EQ on the program. Yeah. And then I guess um, based on that, you speak about the, the sort of um, laying your bets. We've just finished... Um, the the end of the upfronts presentations. Um, anything looking forward to twenty twenty three that it, it, I guess has caught your attention? I know we spoke to Initiative after a couple of these, but um, mm. you you in particular, anything you're excited off the back of upfronts? I mean, like I'm, I'm glad that I actually have had a you know a week or two to digest upfronts because you know not only was it just the big networks but it was the out of home guys like it just feels like there was a, a significant wealth of events off this year yeah and sometimes um those can bleed into each other and it can be hard to really think about like you know what was the big outtakes but you know what i'd say is that, like overall the sheer volume of content on offer is a massive win for like most australian audiences i think the seven partnership um, with NBC to launch Seven yep. Bravo, I think is, you know, absolutely unreal. I think, um, you know, the the story around SBS and beyond 3% and the success of that has been, you know, incredibly humbling and exciting to watch because, you know, I frankly believe the industry can be doing way more in that space for sure. But also, you know, the fact they're, you know, um, commissioning their biggest ever con- local content slate, you know, shows that there's real momentum. Um, from a from a 10 point of view, um, I'd probably say like their Pluto TV content being housed within 10 play was, was, was a nice like addition. Mm-hmm. And then like nine, like, you know, nines was, you know, an amazing um, overview of what they got. I think there's some really smart plays in nine traffic network um, and, you know, what they're doing there. And I think, you know, they'll continue to go to uh, from a strength to strength from a, from a data proposition as well. So, you know, whilst there was a lot to digest, I do think, you know, each and every network had something significant to brag about. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, next year, the the toys that we as media buyers have to play with are far more exciting. And you've got a lot more decisions to make on that hand. You know, kind of speak about SBS as well. I mean, it's sort of creeping in as the, that, that a sort of turning the three into the four, would you say, in terms of, uh, the, the I guess, competing for, for buyer's dollars? Yeah, massively. And, like, you know, they've always done well in the on-demand space. Like, they've absolutely killed it um, in that area. But it's good to see that momentum from them. You know what? What we want as buyers is more competition and more more players in market delivering more innovation, more eyeballs. Because it's it's only going to be better for everyone involved. So you know, I've I've always had a soft spot with SBS, but like it's great to see them have the the scale now that we can kind of really execute hard with them. And just the last one on SBS, um, I touched on it before in terms of the World Cup. Uh, we're seeing um, I guess some pretty big ratings and maybe 
a little larger than what we might have assumed or thought at the start of the World Cup with some of those um, ethical issues coming in to the tournament in Qatar. What, what sort of opportunities do you think that this current World Cup can provide for SBS to then, I guess, kick on from in gaining potentially a lot of um, new logins or um, eyeballs on their main channel? I mean, like the the World Cup in in particular has always been, you know, a, a stronghold of SBS. It's always been something that they've delivered exceptionally well, and you know, their broadcast quality throughout that experience is, you know, arguably second to none. I think, like, definitely, I would be using it like Seven use the Olympics to build your ID base and continue just to kind of scale that in in sort of really bold ways. Um, but like, you know, I guess outside of that, it's it's one of those things where. You're right. I think as as planners and you know as as the broader industry, there was a lot of questions on audience delivery in the World Cup with the ethical issues, and even mm-hmm. like you know, is there danger for advertisers being involved in those environments? But I think the the unity message of the actual game of soccer um, helped trump that, and I think you know the more that they lean into celebrating you know different communities and and walking that line i think you know we we generally feel like there's a sense of trust within that sbs ecosystem great well uh chris it's been fantastic having you on and thanks for giving us your insights on this uh uh, i guess 40 what 40 week year uh ratings year yeah yeah no it's been fun cool thanks mate have a good one that is it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Only a few more episodes to go before the year is out. Give us a in-app rating if you like what you're hearing. But for now, thank you for joining me, Darren. Thanks very much, Callum. And thanks again, Damo. Thank you, Melbourne Bureau Chief. Appreciate it. And cheers again to Chris for joining me. We'll be back next week with a special panel discussion on the year in news media. See you then.